Well, thank you, Randy. Good morning, Church at the Red Door and our uh, growing online community. Uh, we have missed you. Uh, I'm a little bit more somber tone today, and I will obviously talk about that, given everything that's going on, uh, not only around the world with the pandemic, and uh, although that some feel that may be waning a bit now, uh, certainly America has been confronted with some of our some of the greatest challenges that we've had, certainly in my generation. Uh, uh, again, I was post kind of war, uh, Vietnam and uh, 56 years old now, so we missed some of that. So this is a, this is a this is a tragedy on the collective American consciousness, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Before I do, I want to pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for those that uh, may somehow just stumble across this at some point in the future. And uh, Lord, we want you to be seen uh, as who you are. Lord, we're going to be talking about two more powerful characteristics of you, Lord, that we need to be riveted on during times like this. Lord, I pray for our nation. I pray for the African-American community and, and, and Lord, the pain that they suffer, not just because, uh, not just because of George Floyd, Lord, but because uh, going all the way back historically, Lord, the challenges and the suffering that they've endured. Father, I pray for uh, our community as a whole. I pray that we would be sensitive to your direction. Uh, I pray for those who are suffering, Lord. Lord, I'm asking you specifically to be with me this morning. Lord, I'm asking you to give me your words and not my own. Uh, I have been asking you over this last week how to prepare and speak to this issue. And so, Lord, I'm asking that it would be your words. Lord, be with us today. Uh, grant us joy and peace in the midst of great challenges. And Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I've been thinking about I I sent out a missive this last week and talked to, to you a little, a little bit about how I thought we should be directing our prayers. Uh, I've been a little measured in my response. And the primary reason for being uh, a little measured is I wanted to think. I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to talk to people within the African-American community. I wanted to talk to people within the within the police department. I wanted to talk to people uh, that were on all sides and, and just get their feelings, get their responses, get their emotional reactions. I wanted to go back to the Word and think through. Obviously, many verses jumped to my mind, but I, I didn't want to be caught up in all the rhetoric and the the five-second sound bites. You know, uh, one of the important things, especially when we come to a time like this in our nation's history or in the world in general, is that our message, irrespective of that, has to be timeless. A message has to be timeless. A message has to be a message that could be preached in Zimbabwe, in the inner city, uh, in, uh, in maybe a predominantly African-American uh, community. Uh, it needs to be able to be pre preached behind the walls of a country club somewhere, South America, uh, and not only in space, but also in time. And one of the things we've got to understand, or I should say in place, but also in time, uh, it should be a message It could be preached 500 years ago and a message that would be just as timeless and could be preached 500 years from now if Jesus decides not to come back before then. But this has to be that, and because of that, uh, there's a real sense of pause. There's a sense of, in my own spirit, that I need to wait upon the Lord, to ask him what he thinks, to ask him what his message might be to us as a community. That doesn't always come just overnight. There's knee-jerk reactions to everything. I don't want to be caught up in the emotion of the events, but try to pull back and say, Lord, what are your thoughts on this? What might you be doing through this 
and what what is your heart for the, these communities that are adversely affected? And then what should our response be? You know, my heart's been broken like many of yours have been, given the, what I saw uh, on video. I could only watch it once. It was a horrific tragedy. It was it was a killing of George Floyd, and that breaks my heart. And equally, as I looked around, I see so much injustice and and irrespective of skin color, the 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 rioting and the and the and the the looting and all the things that that went on in and around that uh, that just seemed to cry out for a shop owner, maybe even of African American descent, a shop owner whose place was looted or uh, a building burned down. Maybe they'd worked their whole lives to do that. I know some in our own community have been affected by that, and I had some conversation and dialogue this week with people who own property that was that was ravaged by some of these uh, some of this looting and things so it breaks my heart it it absolutely destroys me on the inside emotionally and then you have to pick yourself up and say what will be our response you know i thought one of the ways that would probably be most appropriate. I have a dear friend that's part of our community at Church at the Red Door, good friend of the Solis families. That's how I actually met them. I met Kino. Kino is a fantastic, lovely, precious man who's, again, part of our community, also involved on our Thursday morning, uh, one of the Thursday morning studies that I do. And uh, we've played golf together and enjoyed time together. Uh, And I I called Kino this week as an African-American man, and I said, I'm going to ask you to do two things, Kino. I'm going to ask you, just just come on, film it on your iPhone, and I would ask that you would speak to two things. How did you, your family, your son, he has a a 20-something-year-old son, how did you feel uh, after this event when you saw what happened to George Floyd? And then secondly, do you have any hope? And so I want to share that with you now. Good morning, Church at the Red Door. My name is Keno Clark. In light of the recent events that is happening within our country, I would like to share with you what's on my heart. You hear the stories, you read the books, but when I actually saw the video, it broke my heart. And as the father of three extraordinary young men, I was at a loss for words. We have a lot to do to heal this nation. I'm not sure where to start, but I know it starts with Jesus. I choose to put my hope in Jesus Christ. Let's spread the message. Christ is our hope. Kino, thank you. Uh, Getting your insight uh, on this is powerful. It's just powerful. So I want to move on. I want to talk to this issue, but I want to do it through the context of actually what we've been talking about in Psalm 93. We looked at the the reign of God and that he's, he's girded in this um, amazing uh, characteristics. I mean, he's girded in strength. He's he, he reigns. We, we know this. He's girded in majesty. It's amazing. He's just so majestic. But I want to talk to, to you tonight, today about two things, two things, two other qualities of God, his strength, number one, and the fact that he is without beginning and without end. And then I'm going to work that together and then try to give you my thoughts as it relates to this larger issue we're confronting, this crisis that we're confronting as a country. Uh, so I want to start, if you will, with this uh, this Hebrew word for strength. Uh, so if we go back and and unpack Psalm ninety three, it says our God is uh, full of strength. He's girded in strength. And uh, well, many of you might say, well, that seems to be obvious. I mean, if God is God, isn't that necessarily that He's strong? But I want to talk to you this morning about and ask the question: How 
Is God strong? That's the question. We know God just by his very definition. I mean, anybody who's the creator, the source of all life, has to be able to uh, demonstrate power. He already has through creation. Uh, Again, Romans 1, you know, we can look at creation and see that there must be a God and his power is made evident to men. Some suppress that knowledge, but it's obvious to us that God is strong. But again, how is God strong? Uh, Isaiah 40, uh, verses 10 and 11, listen to the language. We're going to set up this idea and this concept of the arm of the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord will come with might, with strength here, with his arm. And this word in the Hebrew is zeroah. And it really means it can also denote like the the hind leg of an animal, the really strong leg, maybe like a kangaroo, really the punching powerful leg. It's a powerful force. So it says with his arm, this Zeroah, his forceful arm, it says ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And then all of a sudden, this powerful force is likened to a shepherd. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Okay, so we get this picture in Isaiah. Just gives a little picture here in Isaiah chapter 40. And says, the Lord is going to come with his arm, with his zeroah, with his forceful hind leg, his really powerful arm. And then all of a sudden, shepherd. Those two things, I, I guess you could see a shepherd as being someone of great strength. I mean, maybe they have to fight off predators for the sheep and things like that. But... It's shepherd and strength. Okay, so we get that picture, but now it's really going to be more fully developed here in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, the first six verses. Now, let me tell you something. This particular passage we've looked at here at Church of the Red Door, we will continue to look at it for as long as I have any opportunity to share the gospel with you. This is one of the most powerful prophetic passages written over 700 years before the time of Jesus. And it's clearly, clearly a picture, a messianic picture. And then obviously as followers of Jesus, we can easily see Jesus as fulfilling this particular passage. And it's going to help us answer how God is strong. We know that he's strong. The question is, how is he strong? Isaiah 52 verse 10 says, The Lord has bared his holy arm, his Zeroah. He says, in the sight, now catch this, in the sight of all the nations, okay? So now you you say, well, how is that gonna be true? I mean, all the nations are gonna see this king of this small nation, you know, in this this part of the Middle East. I mean, how is, what is he seeing, all the nations? I mean, he can see maybe that he would bear his arm and maybe a few of the surrounding nations that were impacted by Israel's history. Maybe somehow Isaiah's seeing that, but no, he's looking to the future and he's seeing this holy arm, this powerful force is going to be uh, evident to all the nations. It goes on to say that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And I want to jump down to verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. Well, force is certainly prospering, so we can see that. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, this is a powerful picture of two things, not only Jesus' dominion and his authority to rule and reign one day, and already he's at the right hand, seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, waiting to have his uh, say and set all things right, but I think this has another implication. High and lifted up, he was high and lifted up 
at the cross. So the greatest picture of apparent weakness was actually the greatest picture of God's, well, his kindness and his compassion, and actually the greatest picture of his authority and strength. Yes, strength can be seen in apparent weakness. You know, the world says, don't, don't cry, don't let yourself, and yet we see Jesus, Jesus wept. Uh, the world says, don't show a soft underbelly, people will walk all over you. No, the greatest strength, God's strength is always two things. It's shown in compassionate love and obviously then the power to execute and rule and reign. Now, I mean, that is ultimate power, ultimate strength that we get here in Psalm 93. It goes on to say in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so now talking back about this messianic figure, his appearance was marred more than any man. Now that the marring, a beating, is usually the evidence of someone who is weak, someone who's been trounced on, someone who is at the, the bottom of the heap, someone who's marred more than any man is not a picture of strength, and yet God's saying, no, this is the ultimate strength. Power is perfected in weakness, Paul says to the Corinthians. It says, and his form was more marred than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. In other words, God's strength at the moment may look like weakness, but in the end, people come to faith. In fact, the entire, the nations will see and move in the direction of the Messiah through this display of strength, well, strength that looked like weakness. It goes on to say, kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. Now listen to this positioning of these words. This is the Zerawah. This is the right arm, the forcefulness of God but also listen to the language. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Zerowah, the force of the Lord, the arm, his very strength, his picture of strength. For he grew up him before him like a tender shoot. Strength? How's tender and strength? Usually tender, you know, tender, a tender child, a, a tender newborn, a tender, you know, but tender for force? How does this work together? And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty. In other words, God in his condescension becoming a man, uh, we didn't look at him and say, oh, how majestic he, he just looked like a normal Jewish man of the time. Uh, he displayed his, in the transfiguration, we got glimpses of his glory and the apostles were clear to talk about that, but Here's a picture. Well, we didn't see him in his majesty for those 33 and a half years that he walked the earth. That we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He wasn't a particularly good-looking guy. He just looked like just looked like a normal run-of-the-mill guy. I mean, from their perspective. Now, again, this is being written. Don't miss this. It's being written 700 years before Jesus' birth. And it goes on to say, he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How is that strength? And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and no one esteemed him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. Think of these words, stricken and afflicted and, and, and we despised him and 
strength, Zeroah, the right, the right, the right arm of God. We're getting a picture of the very characteristics of God. It says, though he was pierced through for our transgressions. Can you imagine that the prophet Isaiah could get a picture of a piercing of someone 700 years? There were no Romans at this time. It would be over 600 years before Rome would come to power and, and devise this idea of crucifixion. And yet Isaiah was seeing it. He said he was crushed for our iniquities. Oh, some strength. He's being crushed again. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, is this the strength of the Lord? Is this power? Yes. See, God's, the very definition of God's strength is strength to rule and reign one day and set things right but it's always measured and it's always balanced and it's always undergirded by his compassionate love for all people, for all people. You know, the Bible's pretty clear in Romans eleven twenty two. It's important that we see both the kindness and the severity of God. It's important that we always understand that God, when he, when he takes a compassion uh, position on any issue. It's not because he's not strong. It's because it's the actual demonstration of his strength. It's not a picture of his weakness, his compassionate love and willingness to lay his own life down for us was in fact a picture of his strength. You know, as our, our generation, what is our task? Well, it's to declare this kind of strength to declare these characteristics of God. You say, what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is that we are to declare the very characteristics of God to a generation that may have even removed God from their own ideas. And when that happens, as I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, it always leads to anarchy. If you remove God from our ideology, from our understanding, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of knowledge, as Proverbs 1 says. If we remove that, what happens? It leads to chaos because it's every man for himself or every man does what's right in his own eyes. And that can be true for uh, a white police officer and it can be true for someone who is on the wrong end of persecution or racism in some way. Uh, it's such a challenge to follow Jesus. And yet, and yet it's our call as followers of Jesus. Psalm 71, 18 simply says, and even when I am old and gray, O God, don't forsake me until I declare your strength and again, that word in the Hebrew, your zeroah, your right arm, until I declare, really, when, it's, when we're talking about declare, they didn't, I don't know that the psalmist understood this in its fullness, but what we see now, that's telling us a thousand years before Jesus that one day we need to declare his zeroah, his right arm, and we know his right arm to be Jesus. Who, to who, to this generation. You know what the answer to our issues you know what the answer is? It's always the same. It's the declaration of the gospel. Jesus Christ buried, crucified, buried, and raised. Why? For our justification. Look, one of the big issues in our day is that we don't have a proper theology of sin. 
See, a proper theology of sin, and I'll bottom line it, is that we're all sinners. I mean, we're all, we all practice injustice, every one of us. And as a result, there's a certain humility that always governs our attitudes towards anyone else. Why? Because we all understand our basic fallenness. And when we do, and when we understand our basic fallenness, it doesn't mean that we don't fight for justice. It doesn't mean maybe that we don't go protest. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that there, there is an undergirding, a knowledge, a deep understanding that we ourselves also are part of the problem. Look, I'm part of the problem, you know, as a privileged white person that essentially grew up in the country club atmosphere. I'm a privileged white person. I'm the cause of injustice. I have just as much injustice in my heart. I did, and then the Lord slowly is transforming me, but I was part of the problem. I was part of the problem. And until I can see that, I don't have a proper theology of sin. And if it left us there, we would all just sit down on a chair and bemoan the fact that we were fallen and horrible and and uh, we had you know grievous things that occurred in our hearts. We would all be left there. But the beauty of this is that once a proper theology of sin is understood, then we can have an understanding of redemption that God laid down his life for us, gave it up so that we could be brought into a family, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational uh, family that doesn't see color and that doesn't see socioeconomic status and everything else, we're brought into a beautiful community called the kingdom. That, my friends, is always a timeless message because it's part of one of the reasons that we were created is to be, become a part of a creation. You know, when I do read Revelation 22 and I see that the nations will be worshiping one day, God does see skin color in some way and he creates the nations, but in Christ we all are knit together in humility. Now I'm going to have one of my uh, dear friends now coming to you from Washington. I love the message. I think the message would help us. Again, it's just a commentary. But the message would help us in the Psalm 71. So I'm going to turn this to my friend Dan Wheeler up in Washington. Dan, would you mind uh, reading for us Psalm 71 out of the message uh, from basically verses 17 through 24? Thank you, my friend. Carol and Dan Wheeler here from Anacortes, Washington, the gateway to the San Juan Islands. It's a beautiful day today. It's 61, 62, slight breeze and a lot of sunshine. I'm sure a lot of you would be envious down in the area. We certainly miss the Red Door Church. We will be glad when everybody can get together again. We love the Red Door. Uh, Carol will be reading today from the message, Psalm 71, 17 through 24. That's Psalm 71, 17 through 24, Carol. You got me when I was uninformed youth, God, and taught me everything I know. Now I'm telling the world your wonders. I'll keep it until I'm old and gray. God, don't walk off and leave me until I get out the news of your strong right arm to this world, news of your power to the world yet to come, your famous and righteous ways, O oh God. God, you've done it all. Who is quite like you? You who make me stare trouble in the face, turn me around. Now let me look life in the face. I've been to the bottom. Bring me up, streaming with honors. Turn to me, be tender to me, and I'll take up the lute and thank you to the tune of your faithfulness, God. I'll make music for you on a harp, holy one of Israel. 
When I open up in song to you, I let out lungs full of praise, my rescued life a song. All day long, I'm chanting about you and your righteous ways, while those who tried to do me in slink off, looking ashamed. Back to our pastor, Jeff. Thank you so much, Dan. I, I really appreciate that. It's so good to see you, and and uh, and we love you and Carol so much. Now, the second next part of this, again, this is Psalm 93. Let me read it for you, Psalm 93. The next passage here just simply says, the world is firmly established, it won't be moved. I know in times of crisis, sometimes we feel like our whole world is being moved. Let me tell you something. God's relentless uh, activity in the, in the hearts of men and in the activities of men is always moving towards the culmination of this earth experience where he will eventually set up his kingdom. And until then, the earth is not going to be moved. It's not going to be moved. God is exacting. He's so exacting in his creation. It's not going anywhere. There's no cataclysmic event that's going to happen until God accomplishes his purposes in the earth. That's important. That should bring a sense when we recognize that God is in charge. Uh, he is not a passive bystander uh, forced to sit on the sidelines of human history and, and not active. It may appear at times like, where is God in this? And we see that with the prophets. Where are you, God? Where are you, God, crying out? Sometimes we may feel that, but it's important then to meditate on the reality that this world is firmly established and nothing's going to happen until God a call, you know, uh, executes his plan on the earth. And then when he comes back, the Bible simply says that things will be melt with intense heat. He'll set up a new creation and we'll live in a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, that's the steadying reality that we all have. Now I want to speak to you uh, folks, uh, and this is the second part. I want to talk to you about the reality that God has always existed. And in that, he's unchanging. We talked a little bit about that last week. God is eternal. God is eternal. So in the next portion of the Psalm 93, you'll notice it simply says that your throne is established from of old and you are from everlasting. Now that word again in the Hebrew is olam. It not having a beginning, it's a foreverness. It's never changing, not having an ending in time. It's olam, it's from eternity. And I think this is really going to help us, uh, this word, this alam, this word, uh, is really going to help us, see, to understand and to get in our DNA, if you will, the very picture that God wants us to have. And I think this will be applicable to the times, the very times that we're living uh, right now, especially with the advent of all the political unrest and the, the racial tension. Uh, I want to give you this picture. And we're going to go back and we're going to look at the prophet Micah. Now, Micah was writing about the same time as Isaiah. Uh, he sees in prophesying the, uh, the decline. Now, you got to realize, because several hundred years later, the kingdom had been split between north and south. He it begins to prophesy, Micah does, about the Assyrians will come in and level the 10 northern tribes, of which they did. We know that historically. He's also prophesying that Jerusalem is going to be leveled. He vacillates. He goes back and forth. He, the first two chapters are really tough. He, he really calls out the leaders of Israel. He calls out their prophets. The prophets are looking, pro prophesy something good for you if you'll just give me a little bit of money. Uh, uh, the, the leaders were caring only about themselves and they were taking people's land. There was a lot of injustice, a lot of injustice during that time in Israel's history. Micah calls them out. He said, and because of that, you're going to be judged. There's going to be judgment coming to you. 
but then there's a shift and then he he flashes forward to the future and this picture of a, a messianic hope begins to emerge. And this happens at least three times during the course of his uh, conversation in Micah. And we get some amazing pictures that uh, unfold. First, there's judgment, Assyria and Babylon are going to come in and, and level, and it's going to level these, uh, both the north and the south. It's going to be very challenging, very difficult. I'm going to set up uh, I'm going to really pour out my wrath on, on my people. So there's a clear call, a clarion call for them to return to a place of justice. And that's where we get one of our most famous passages in Micah, declaring, you know, uh, uh, God's love of justice and kindness and mercy. You know, so we get a strong picture of that in Micah. But then there's a shift and we see this again. We see a shepherding figure that emerges that's going to a hope. You know, there's judgment but then there's hope and the shepherding figure is going to come in and he's, he's going to bring people back together and he's going to mend, mend this and he's going to take care of the sheep. And then again, we get a shift back to judgment, but then we get a picture of a, a new Jerusalem that emerges where all the nations in chapter four of Micah, all the nations begin to stream to this new Jerusalem and this Messiah will be on the throne and, and, and his, his, his rule will be everlasting. It'll be an everlasting rule. And then again, back to more judgment. And then this emerges. And you talk about a hopeful picture. Who's going to be on the throne in this new Jerusalem? Well, here's the picture. It could not be more clear. I've had, again, I, this, this verse is so powerful. I talk about it at various points because it's so impactful. It's so clear that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel so clear through Micah chapter five. We're going to start here in verse two. It says, as for you, Bethlehem, uh, uh, he says, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, out of Judah, so it's going to be the tribe of Judah, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of Olam, the days of eternity. Uh, from a never-ending time. His days, what does that mean? Uh, his goings forth have been eternal. In other words, this is a figure that's going will have lived and existed before his actual birth and will have no end. He, his comings and goings have been uh, along from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when he who is in labor is born a child. Then the remainder of his brothers who will return to Israel uh, will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise. And again, a picture of shepherding his flock. Now here's the, here's the picture again. In the strength, here it's the Hebrew word is oz, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty, in the geuth we looked at last week, in the very majesty, this uh, unbelievable rising of excellence of the name of the Lord his God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Okay, so as we look at this prophet Micah, it's extraordinary, and I think I think it was the answer that I had been asking the Lord. What do I say? If I take on a Micah kind of a posture, you know, what do I say? What do we as the church say? Well, first of all, you've got to understand that Micah, his primary task was not to preach to the nations. The nations were in a complete uproar. In fact, Psalm chapter 2 uh, ask the question, why are the nations in an uproar? Here's the reason, because the nations are always in an uproar. Why? Because injustice cries out 
constantly in the world. There's never a time when in, there's not injustice to be found in the earth, whether it's racism, whether it's thievery, whether it's whatever it is, whether it's the, the rich persecuting the poor and, and taking advantage of them through laws and, and technicalities and things, whatever it is, injustice reigns in the earth. Injustice will always be here. That's why the nations are in uproar. But see, Micah's call was speak to Israel. Now, Israel is a picture of God's chosen people. Now we recognize who are God's chosen people. God's chosen people are now Jews and Gentiles together. One new man, Paul says in Ephesians. One new man, one new nation, if you will. This is the nation producing the fruit of it that Jesus was talking about. Jew and Gentile, the incredible mystery that is called the church. So Micah's call was to Israel. Micah's same call still, still flows down through the centuries and says, here's the call. Of course, God is strong. Of course, God's words are eternal. But Micah himself says, but now you're called to declare the strength of God. You know what Micah said about himself? Micah chapter three, Micah chapter three, verse eight. This is what he says about himself. He says, on the other hand, I am filled with power or strength or might. I'm filled. Where did that power and strength come from? From God. So God's power, we're going to say, okay, God has power. How is God's power delivered through his chosen people? With the spirit of the Lord, he has power with the spirit of the Lord. That's the new spirit that we have in the Holy Spirit. And with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. So what is my task here today? Well, I think I have the strength of the Lord. Why? Because it's the word. I have the strength of the Lord. What is my task? To declare that we need to seek justice. The question is, how do we do that? I will tell you that our landscape, our political landscape, in my view, is utterly devoid of any real solution. I mean, if you look at it, it seems so hopeless right now. A political solution for the crisis in which we find this nation in seems so remote. So what's the answer? It's his church. It's If you're a follower of Jesus, it's you and it's me in the strength of the Lord. And what is the strength? Well, how do we move forward? How do we how does the church rise up? How does this church be majestic now? It's not our majesty. It's the majesty of the one who lives in us. How are we majestic? We demonstrate strength in this moment exactly as God demonstrated strength through what looks like weakness. Not through political power, not through maneuverings, not through, uh, not through no, through relentlessly laying down our lives We've talked about this before, but I'm going to say it again. The kingdom of God, our Father who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If we see this as laid out in God and the way he, the way he displays his strength, it's in absolute self-sacrifice. It is, well, sometimes we're despised. Sometimes we're stricken. Sometimes we pick up our own crosses. We follow him. The only way the kingdom can advance is through absorbing those kinds of things. 
If we inflict them, we inflame them. Let me say that again. If we inflict a blow on someone, we inflame the situation. We see that all the time. I was talking this week to my precious friend, Dr. Saref. Same thing. We get the cycle, same cycle. It's just a different ethnic rivalry that rises up and you've got the Palestinians and you've got the, uh, the Israelis and this, you know, tick for tat, tit for tat, tit for tat, back and forth. And it's a horror show when that ha- if that happens. And it is happening right here in the, in the U.S., you know, it's a it's a strike here and then a strike back and a strike here. Even and, and we all feel the, the brunt of it and just this inflammatory language and, and the rhetoric that goes on on all sides, whatever the sides are. See, in the kingdom of heaven, there are no sides. We're all on one side. I and my brother Kino and many others, we can we can link arm in arm and we can in compassion encourage. That's what that's what. Micah just said about himself, I've been, I have the strength and in compassion and justice and courage. We do, as individuals, we stand up. We stand up against injustice. We, we declare it for what it was. The killing of George Floyd was a tragedy. You know, I spoke this week with a, one of our precious friends, with a former chief of police in Orange County. He said it was an absolute tragedy. He said so many, myself and others, we, we cringed it so grievous for us to see uh, a, a fellow lawman that kind of injustice it just is heartbreaking and justice has to happen there it's a very purpose for the government uh, to be the the strong arm of the law and whatever that has and, and again I don't judge a man before but it's pretty indicting what we've seen and so that is a real tragedy but how do we approach this? We lay down our lives as individuals. If you spit at me, I don't spit in return. If you hit me, I don't hit you in return. I mean, that's the gospel. It's the very essence. Why? Because it's a demonstration of the very strength of God, as we see in Isaiah 52 and 53. It's, it's Jesus. You want to follow Jesus? You're gonna, you will absorb some blows, right? Was your, was your, was your building, uh, burned down in this? Are you an African-American that has suffered at the hands of as racial, racial prejudice? Our call is the same. Our call is the same. We lay down our lives and we declare the glory of Jesus. That message is timeless. That message is true. It was true to the Jews who were under the oppression of the Romans. If it was true there, it's true now. Does that mean we don't vote? Does that mean we don't have any political affiliation? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just saying ultimately the answer, there is only one. It is the great hope and his name is Jesus. Micah, judgment, but there's hope coming. Judgment, but there's hope coming. The shepherd, the king of this new Jerusalem, this new kingdom where all the nations will bow and in bowing, they will be united. Folks, this is, this is our picture. You know, one thing we know, Hebrews 13, verse 8, one of the things about God and demonstrated in Jesus, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. He, Jesus is not changing. He wasn't compassionate 2,000 years ago and now vengeful and wrathful. He's still compassionate. He's compassionate today. Maybe you've suffered. Maybe in our community, maybe, maybe some of you have suffered 
and you've suffered with bitterness from things that you've seen on television. Well, let me tell you, lay it down. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Why? Because you, we're all part of the we're all part of the injustice. Okay? Lay it down at the foot of the cross. And then secondly, remember John chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus again declaring his unchangeable nature. He says, You are from below. In other words, you're bound to time and space. He says, But I'm from above. You are of the world. I'm not of this world. What Jesus was saying, he says, my existence is eternal. My nature is eternal. Yes, I'm the ruler. Of course, I have all strength and power. But let me tell you something. I also am clothed in strength. And that strength looks like this. It's compassionate love. I'm going to take a blow. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to the very people who were nailing him to the cross and would see him breathe his last until he finally said, it is finished, right? I mean, it's, it's finished. The story's over. The redemption story is there for all of us to embrace. And last, I'll just say this. Uh, the, it goes on and to conclude uh, Psalm 93. It says his testimonies are confirmed. I love, again, the message here, Psalm 93. It says, what you say goes, God, it always has. Beauty and holy, uh, holy mark your palace rule, God to the very end of time. Look, if we're gonna live in heaven one day, do, do you realize, and I love this too, uh, the life application commentary says, holiness is the very oxygen of heaven. Do you realize uh, we need to be moving into that now? You know, we want that, that beauty of holiness to mark our lives now, not just in some future uh, eschatological uh, outlay some sometime we're in heaven one day in the sweet by and by we want we want to start breathing that holiness that oxygen now even when it feels like the oxygen around us is stagnated in times like this and God's just so beautiful and he's so holy uh, I know you're many of you felt this pounding of the waves uh, my African-American friends you've certainly felt this and, and our hearts break for how you must have felt, uh, especially seen. And, but it's not just George Floyd. It's, it's hundreds of years of, of challenges. I, I, our hearts break for you. But let me also say that this pounding of the waves and nations are in an uproar, what's the, what's the answer? It's Jesus. It's this messianic hope. It's the only thing. So I want to leave you with this. Here's what I want you to do. Practical application step. And uh, Pastor Seifert, uh, mentioned this in one of our groups here a number of weeks back, and it's Psalm 19, verse 14. What can you do? Well, you can say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in closing, I simply want to say this. I want you to guard your thoughts. I want, the emotions are swirling right now, and it is easy to stereotype and to, to mock and to be afraid, and to be defensive, and to protect, and to all these things. Jesus is calling us out of the boat, onto the, a storm-tossed, raging uh, little lake here, and he said, just keep your eyes on me. Let the, and, and your prayer and my prayer should be, Father, I'm praying that during this time, you would give me eyes to see, that I would have an understanding that I'm also part of the problem, because uh, it just is true. It's a, it's a theology of sin. And I'm praying that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you this week. That's what I want our prayer to be. So look, these, 
this is it's been such a challenging message for me. I'll be honest with you. I, uh, but there is hope. I want you to understand, folks. It may feel that our way of life is being threatened, and you hear words of Antifa and this. And I'm not saying there's no uh, there's no basis for any of this, but you've got to understand that the only solution to the crisis that is plaguing America today, the only solution is for the church to walk in the fullness of the strength of God, which is displayed oftentimes by his compassionate love that may appear to be weak. It's absorbing it, not inflicting the blows, which inflames. I hope that makes sense to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I've thought through these words uh, for a quite quite. Uh, quite a few hours. Father, I've asked that you would speak. Lord, I'm an imperfect man. Uh, I have I have perspectives and views and, and I'm quick to, to sometimes to announce them. Father, I'm praying that you would help Church at the Red Door and all those who would participate with us. I would pray, Lord, that you would help us measure our words. I pray, Lord, that you would help us think deeply to be quiet before we give an answer, before we give some easy, quick solution. Lord, we know the only solution in an ultimate way is a restored heart, a redeemed life, one with a new heart and a new spirit, which is your promise in the new covenant. So Lord, I thank you for this morning. If If I've said anything that was deemed to be offensive, Father, forgive me. And I would pray that our community would too. But Father, I'm asking you that you would help us move forward and help us be the church, the church. Let us rise up in this time and cry out for justice and mercy. And Father, we love you so much in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're gonna move on to communion now and I'm gonna turn this over to Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul, thank you so much. And... uh, Uh, Let's have communion together. Have a great week. We're here for you if you need us. We love you.